Go ahead and have a seat. Once again, welcome to Village Church. It's been so long since I've been up here. About five minutes. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open, open it to Matthew 23. We're going to be starting in verse 25 this morning. But we are coming to a conclusion of the fifth part of our journey through the book of Matthew. I do not even know how many sermons have been in the book of Matthew so far. Uh, but if you go to the website, if you need to catch up, it's hours of listening pleasure uh, where you get to hear me. Uh, but uh, Matthew 21 through 23 have really been the focus of this section. And that is a heavy section of Scripture. These are heavy chapters of God's Word. And the closer that we get to the death of Jesus Christ in the book of Matthew, the heavier that you can expect the text to be. And one reason for that is the reality that we are seeing firsthand why it is that we need Jesus to redeem us. The book of Romans states that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the reality that we're seeing through these texts is just how great a cost that gift has come to us. It is a heavy cost that Jesus would pay on the cross. And so if you feel the weight of these texts, that is by design. The inspirational nature of these verses is more about understanding the sin of humanity than it is to encourage you with any ability that you have to value the grace that God gives us through the gospel. You must confront the reality of your own sin. You know, we live in a culture that wants redemption without the need of an external savior. The world around us wants the attributes of the kingdom of heaven without a God to rule over that kingdom. They want a religion to follow without a Lord that gives commands. And that's the situation that you really find yourself in in first century Israel as the Pharisees and the scribes and all of the different religious rulers of that day led people to build a religion more based on man's ability than the necessity of God to move inside of each and every one of our lives. They were so deceived that the Son of God is standing right in front of the religious rulers and they don't even recognize who he is. They had taken faith in God and turned it into a man-made religion that they could use to make themselves look good rather than give glory to the God who's in heaven. Jesus in this section from verse 23 excuse me, verse 25 through 33, gives three woes to these religious rulers. He confronts them with the outward appearance of religion while they were actually dead and rotting on the inside because of their evil. And Jesus confronts us in our day with the reality of false piety that is designed to signal virtue to those around you while there is no work of God going on inside of your very life. Look with me, if you will, to verse 25 of Matthew 23. Jesus begins again by saying, Woe to you. Now, if you haven't been here with us the past two weeks, what Jesus means by that in the original language, it literally means you are condemned where you stand. He's speaking of the damnation of these false leaders. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Number one this morning, understand outward appearances can be deceiving. Outward appearances can be deceiving. 
external practices do not replace the need for real faith. Jesus, in the next two word pictures that he draws, are probably the clearest analogies that he makes, especially in his discourse with the Pharisees. He's not very winsome. All right, Jesus is just very clear. He's very condemning. He's very harsh. This is not Jesus meek and mild. This is Jesus full of fury for these religious leaders. And he uses what I think are analogies that don't really need to be explained that much to understand at least on a base level what he's saying. Jesus initially starts with the analogy about the fact that you don't worry yourself more about the outside of a cup and a plate than you do looking in the middle of it. If you don't understand that the inside of your cup needs to be clean, I don't think you understand proper hygiene. Jesus is explaining the reality that if any of us at a restaurant, we were to go and we were to order a drink, let's say you order water, it wouldn't take too many floaties going on on top of that cup for you to call the waiter or waitress over to bring you a replacement. Now, maybe some of you would drink it, and that's where we're very different. I would not. A cup does not need to be too dirty for me to not drink from that cup. All right, I don't think you're any different. So this is an analogy that we understand. But Jesus goes in even further and he says, imagine that you have this cup and your religion to me is as though you clean the outside of the cup and the inside is just filled with grime and grit and dirt. It is obviously filthy when you look at the inside of the cup. And what he's saying is no one would drink from that cup. So also, he says, is the condition of their religion. They have worried themselves about external conformity to a list of rules. They have made the outside of their lives look extremely clean through their commitment to this religion where they have made up most of the rules. But Jesus says on the inside, they are full of filth. The terminology goes beyond just condemning them for their sin And it goes further to explain that it is one thing to be a fool. It is another thing to lead other people into your foolishness with you. The book of James tells us that those that would be teachers of God's word are held to a higher standard than anyone else. Because God's word needs to be clear. God's word needs to be about worshiping him. God's word is about the glory of God. And so when you wield God's word in a selfish way to steal the glory from God and give it to yourself, you will be judged more harshly than someone whose sin is only affecting themselves. I've met many fools in my life. You probably have too. It's not because I'm a pastor. It's because I'm a human being. I have spent much of my life interacting with people, and I've walked away from those conversations thinking to myself, that may be the dumbest person I've ever met in my life. You've probably had that experience too. Well, that's what you would call a fool. That person is a fool. But there is a big difference between being a fool and being a leader who leads others into foolishness. The one person, the fool, is only going to affect themselves. That person is only going to bring condemnation onto themselves. But when you enter into a position of leadership, when you try to pretend that your foolishness is actually wisdom that everyone leads in, needs in their lives, well, then you've transcended foolishness and now you are a false leader. 
Now you are someone that is hurting the lives of others. Now you are someone that is bringing condemnation into the lives of others because you are lying to people about God. You are lying to people about what they need to do to experience redemption from sin. And these people are leading others down a path of deceitful foolishness. And that is far worse than being a fool. The Pharisees had created a system by which they wore their claims to righteousness on the outside so that others would revere them. As we've seen earlier, they had all of these practices in their religion so that others would applaud them. They wanted power and fame from other people, and that is an outward appearance of religion with no validity on the inside. And Jesus is confronting them with the reality that it is not the external appearance that defines what a person is, but rather it is the inside reality of who you are that defines what is going on on the inside of you. Jesus is not saying there doesn't need to be an external activity of religion and righteousness in your life, but he is saying you can fake it. There are people who are faking faith in God on the outside, and it is because they have bad motivations behind it. They're leading you down a bad path. Jesus uses two terms in this passage to describe the sin of the Pharisees and why they are filthy on the inside. This is the sin that all leaders must be careful of. First, he calls them greedy, and second, he calls them self-indulgent. Now, the term... And the original language here for greed is the same word used for robbery. It is a violent desire to possess more than you need to the point where you will do anything to get it. You will hurt others if it will get you the gain that you are after. Jesus is looking beyond what they do to the motivation for why they do it. Some people would look at the Pharisees and say, you are doing good things, but Jesus is looking on the inside. You're doing it so that you can gain for yourself at the cost of others. Second word that he uses is self-indulgent. In the original language, literally means that they had no self-control. They were so selfish that they couldn't control how they acted to get their great gain. These were the leaders of Israel at that point. These were the people that had taken the responsibility of pastoring and leading the nation towards the righteousness of God. And Jesus looks at them and says, look at the inside of yourself. You are filled with nothing but selfishness that has led you to hurt other people. The life of God was not in them. Their religion was only about gaining for themselves, regardless of how many hurt people they had to leave in their wake, no matter how much condemnation they brought into other people's lives. But importantly, he doesn't just say they are greedy and self-indulgent. If you look to the very next sentence, he says, you are blind Pharisees. He attaches the descriptor of blind to their leadership position. He says, you're not just a blind. You're more dangerous than that. You're a blind leader. And anyone that follows you is going to fall prey to every area that you're going to because you can't even see God to lead them towards God. It's the same term that he uses in Matthew 15, 14 when he describes them as blind guides. Here's what he says. He says, leave them alone, the Pharisees, because they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. 
He's indicting their leadership. He's saying, if you follow these people, they're not going to be able to point out the predators in the path. They're not going to be able to point out the obstacles that might be in the way of the path. They are so blind that they're not even going to be able to see if there is a pit right in front of you. And if you follow these blind leaders, what do you think is going to happen to you? You're going to fall into the same pit of destruction that they are throughout the book of Isaiah and the Old Testament, God warned Israel of their spiritual blindness. But the blindness of the Pharisees is different than that. This blindness does not just hurt the self. This blindness hurts others because they claim to see even though they are actually blind. You see, this leadership claimed to have the secrets to life and redemption while being built on a foundation of lies that Jesus says will lead to the pit of death. This is the same warning that Jesus gives after his resurrection in Revelation 3:17, speaking to the churches. He says, "For I say, excuse me, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing." So what Jesus is saying to them in Revelation 3:17, speaking to the church of Jesus Christ, he's saying, you're looking to the externals of your life, thinking that you must be having the blessed life. Look at all the money that you have. Look at all the gain that you have made. Look at how big your house is. Look at how fortified your houses are. Look at how safe and comfortable you are in all that you have. Look at the cars you drive. Look at the appearance that you have made. You look at your life and you say, I need nothing. But Jesus' point is, you're using the same measurement that the Pharisees used. It's the measurement of other people. It's the measurement of what everyone else sees on the outside. It's the measurement of success by the standards of this world. But then in the second half of Revelation 3.17, Jesus gives the church God's vision of their lives. You know the difference between God's vision of you and your vision of yourself and the vision of other people? God sees through all of the external to what's going on in your very heart. God knows the why behind the what. God knows the motivation behind everything that you do. And Jesus looks to the church and he says, oh yes, you're rich. You've prospered. You think you need nothing. But here's God's perspective. Here's the next phrase. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's a different picture, isn't it? Second half is so much different than the first half because God sees who you really are on the inside. There are many in this world that seem to have the secret of life that will fix all of the problems of the world, but God warns. That man-made righteousness is always wretched, it's always pitiable, it's always poor, it's always blind, it's always naked. When you believe lies, this is the condition that you are always going to be headed towards. Because you will appear outwardly religious, but on the inside there is only filth. Why? Because lies can never fix sin. Lies can never redeem you. Lies can never give you the righteousness that God demands that you have because God has a far different perspective on life than maybe any of us do without his presence in our lives. But Jesus is just getting warmed up. Jesus hasn't even said the most offensive part yet. 
Look at what he says in verse 27 with his next woe. Woe to you, again, remember, means you are condemned. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Number two this morning, you need to understand that real change happens from the inside out. Real change happens from the inside out. You can make yourself look really good in the eyes of man, but God is worried about what's going on in your very heart. You need a righteousness that you do not have on your own. In verses 27 and 28 here, Jesus builds on his indictment against the Pharisees. He begins with a word picture that moves to expose the deceitfulness of their leadership. A whitewashed tomb was very important in that nation, just like it is in our nation. They served as grave markers. Just as we have great reverence and respect for our lost loved ones, so in first century Israel they would. So at least once a year... They had a custom in which they would wash the grave markers so that everyone would know this is an area where you need to have reverence. Don't mess with these tombs. Our lost loved ones are inside. Much like we have grave markers in our day and we kind of treat cemeteries with great respect. We have great landscaping. You go, you lay flowers everywhere. But the reality is you know in the back of your mind what's going on inside of that tomb. You realize, maybe, and I won't be too graphic, but after a few years in the casket or coffin or whatever you do, they don't look quite as good as when you put them in there. They are decomposing. Death rots down to the bone. In the book of Numbers, chapter 19, verse 16, if you touched a dead body in Israel, you were considered ceremonially unclean for really an extended period of time, which barred you from going into the tabernacle as they uh, traversed the wilderness or into the temple in in, uh, the first or second temple period of Israel because touching the dead brings uncleanness, which is why Jesus uses the term unclean to describe the teachings of the Pharisees in this passage. He looks to the crowd and he says the Pharisees had made the entire crowd unclean because they were as unholy in their teaching as a dead body was. Friends, you can clean the tombstone. You can clean the grave marker, but that does nothing to change what is going on inside of that tomb. It is nothing but rotten, dead flesh and bones. See, friends, they had created an entire religion that was focused solely on a set of practices to set them apart from everyone else. From counting the number of steps that they took on the Sabbath day to beautiful prayer boxes that they would bind on their arms they would put on their hat, the fringes long, And the more they could make those prayer boxes tight on their arm, the more they showed everybody, I pray, I am religious, I have standards. Do you match up to the way that I live my life? But God is looking at the religion of the Pharisees and its man-made sense and telling them that it is nothing more than dogma with no real faith behind it. Why? 
Not, remember, because external practices don't matter, but because faith in God wasn't their focus. The focus was on how faithful they could make themselves by committing to a set of practices, and that is not found anywhere in Scripture. All of Scripture points us to the reality of an inner relationship with God that trusts in His promises and depends on His forgiveness that gives us a life of holy obedience to follow. The Pharisees had gotten it backwards. They didn't look to the sacrificial system as a picture that pointed them to the faithfulness of God in redeeming them by his hand. Rather, they depended on sacrifices to get them great wealth and to show how impressive they could be. They didn't go into the sacrifices with awe of God's holiness and awe of God's power to forgive. Instead, they would go into their sacrifices and say, look at how faithful we are. Look at how good our sacrifices are. Losing the narrative altogether that the point of the sacrifices was that they had sinned, that they needed to be redeemed from, and only God could offer them the forgiveness that they needed. Friends, there is no practice that we can commit ourselves to that will make us righteous. Understand this. Obedience does not give you faith. Faith is what cultivates obedience. Obedience does not give you faith. Faith is what cultivates obedience. And the difference between those two statements is so vital that your entire understanding of Christianity depends on getting it right. If you get it backwards and think obedience earns you something from God, you will have nothing more than a man-made religion that is all about you. But when you realize that it is faith in Jesus Christ that cultivates your obedience, that's when you have your perspective changed to focus on what you need from Him. That is when you realize that He is the one that does the forgiving. He is the one that does the saving. He is the one that fills you with His power to live a life of obedience. That is how you are changed from the inside out. And that is exactly why Jesus came to redeem us. You see, friends, in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, starting in verse 20. He speaks of the faulty religion of the Pharisees, and then he says in verse 20, that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What he's saying is, yes, you need to have a life of obedience. The difference between a person that follows Jesus and a person that doesn't follow Jesus is as different as having an old self and a new self. But what do you do about the sin that is in your life? I have to put it to you this way. There is no good deed in this world, nor are there an amount of good deeds in this world that you can accomplish that will wipe away the sin in your life. There is no religious activity that you can commit to in your life that God will be so impressed by that he will forget that you are a sinner in need of a savior. There is no good that washes away all of your bad. But that's the good news. 
Because the good news of putting off the old self is, is God says, and when you realize that reality, when you submit to the reality that you are a sinner, that is when you will understand your need of a Savior. That is when you will understand that your salvation can't come from inside of you. You're dead. You are filthy. Your salvation must come from someone outside of you. And the beauty of this section of Scripture is the very Jesus that is condemning these Pharisees is the Jesus that had come to accomplish that great salvation. See, the way that you get rid of that old self that is full of sin is when you realize that Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. He puts it in Galatians 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, my old self, it went to the cross with Jesus. My sin went to the cross with Jesus, and he paid the penalty. It is paid in full. And then the new self, well, that is here because that same Jesus rose from the dead, winning victory over sin and death, and he has given me a new life. You put off the old through the cross. You put on the new through the resurrection. And then the inside made clean, death taken out of you, life put in you, then what comes out of you is obedience. You see, friends, obedience apart from Christ isn't what saves you. Obedience inside of Christ is the statement, I am saved. I don't obey so that God will save me. I obey because he already has. I don't obey God so that he'll love me. I obey him because I'm so thankful he already does. I don't obey to work off my sin. I obey because I look to the cross and I say, thank God in Christ Jesus. I have been forgiven. I have no burden on me any longer. I have nothing holding me back from God's design. I am saved. I am in Christ. I will follow him anywhere. And here's the good news. Jesus has one direction he's going in, and that is the direction of the kingdom of heaven. He is the faithful leader that isn't greedy. He is the faithful leader that isn't self-indulgent. He is the faithful leader who isn't filthy, doesn't have dead rotting bones. Rather, he has forever, and he offers it to me free of charge. Forgiveness must be gifted to you. Life must be gifted to you. Righteousness must be gifted to you. And the gospel proclaims to each and every one of us that he already has. But again, Jesus isn't done yet. Here's what he says starting in verse 29, the final woe. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your, of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Again, this is not Jesus meek and mild. This is Jesus full of fury. He condemns them where they stand. You see, friends, number three this morning, understand false piety is deadly. False piety is deadly. 
I think the false piety is one of the greatest deceivers in history. Jesus transitions in this section from analogies to an indictment. He's no longer painting word pictures. He's confronting them outright. The Pharisees were pious. They practiced their spirituality at a level that put them above others. They were so spiritual, it was as if the physical world had no effect on them. And when you begin to see someone like that, and it seems they've transcended above the physical world, that's a first indicator that they are a false teacher, by the way, and that's a first indicator that their faith is bogus. Christianity is extremely practical. But you must understand that being pious is ultimately in a way of saying about signaling your virtue to everyone around you. It is a sanctimonious way of living, acting as though you are the most reverential to the point where everything that's happening around you, it's as if none of it even exists. It doesn't interact with the real world. It doesn't call out false teachers. It doesn't deal with false ideologies in this world because it is above that, and it can deal with that on its own plane. It is a false version of spirituality. These people would spend time, these Pharisees, bemoaning the fact that their ancestors had persecuted and even killed the prophets. They would point out the unfaithfulness of the former religious leaders of Israel. They would seek to honor the prophets by even condemning their own ancestors that persecuted them. And they would spend so much time piously pointing backwards at history, at the atrocities of the past, while teaching false doctrine in the current day that led people away from the true faith in Jesus. That should sound familiar because that is exactly what goes on today. They piously point backwards and say, oh, look at how wicked our ancestors were in history, but we're not like them. We're more righteous than they are. We are more righteous than those in history. But it's all used as a cover because it's easier to deal with sins in history than it is to deal with your own unrighteousness. And Jesus is looking at them and saying, Israel, you are falling prey to these liars. They're using the past as a cover for the present. And what's the most indicting and the reason that Jesus calls them murderers while they say, we never would have persecuted Jeremiah like the former religious leaders did. We never would have killed Zechariah. We never would have beaten Amos in the temple. We never would have persecuted Malachi. We know at this point that they were good and they were righteous. Follow us. But Jesus is indicting them because less than a week later, they would kill the very son of God. Jesus is saying, the bones of your ancestors testify against you. What is worse, killing the prophet of the Son of God or killing the Son of God himself? Friends, hindsight is always 20-20. But unrighteousness condemns us all. We must not be like the Pharisees. We must not have a false piety. Because that is a hypocritical concern with virtue that is ultimately insincere. See, you need a faith that changes you that will be greater than false piety. That's what Jesus is dealing with in that day. Nowadays, we deal with a version of what I like to refer to as Gnostic piety. 
because it deals and seeks to be above the fray to the point where it won't deal with current false teachings and it won't deal with current wicked ideologies. Jesus is dealing with a group of men that are so impressed with their theological pedigree and commitment to certain practices that God the Son is condemning them to their face and they are too spiritually blind to see their own need for redemption and leading others to be blind just like them. In Numbers chapter 32, 14, God pronounces judgment on Israel because they didn't trust him enough to go in to take the promised land. He looks to them and he says, Behold, you've risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. God points to the wickedness of their fathers and then looks to them and says, you are far worse. That is what Jesus is doing right here. Friends, do not seek a form of faith that will make you feel superior because of your practices. Seek a faith that submits to God's clear word and remain faithful to that regardless of what it's going to cost you. False piety will always ultimately result in the ruin of yourselves. But unfortunately, it usually leads to the ruin of other people. Too many spiritual leaders in our day want to be above the fray and not deal with the real threats to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because real faith always pursues the life of Jesus above absolutely everything else. Jesus is very clear. He looks at these men. He says, you are snakes. You will go to hell. This is a warning to remain faithful to the clear gospel of Jesus Christ and all that it entails. When you seek to impress or you seek to become impressed with yourself, you lose the reality that you are a sinner in need of grace that only Jesus Christ can offer. Jesus refers to them as a brood of vipers. Vipers were very small snakes. And in the first century... They had become equated with evil because while they were small snakes, they contained a potent venom. Jesus looks and he says, you are evil. Friends, don't fall for the lies that will put you in that position. Jesus puts it clearly in John chapter 9, verse 39. What he's saying here to the Pharisees, he says to a very similar group, for judgment I came into this world and that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. I love the word play of Jesus and the way that he puts things. Because he's looking to a nation that's blind in their sin. And he says, while you're blind, because of the judgment that he brings, they would be able to see. Because when you realize your spiritual blindness, which is bad news, by the way, but it puts you into a position to accept the good news. Because when you realize that you are blind, that is the moment where when Jesus says, I'll give you sight, that you're more thankful for him than you are yourself. But note what he says in the second half, and it's so fascinating. He says, those who see will become blind. He's speaking to the religious leaders. He's saying, you don't realize you're blind. That's very blind. <laughs> You're so blind, you don't even know you're blind. But he says, the problem that you have is, is you believe a lie. 
You believe that you see, and because of that, you will always be blind to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friend, you must understand your deep need before you will ever be thankful for God's gift of providing for that need. Jesus did come to judge sin. And if you seek a religion that will fix the curse of sin through your own effort, through your own greatness, you will become blind to the things of God. But if you realize the good news of Jesus Christ is always going to be for you, but it's going to be for His glory by His own hand, that is how you receive life in light of the spiritual death that you have. Friends, don't fall into the pit. Don't follow blind guides that don't lead you to Jesus. Follow Jesus Christ. He is the one who can see. He is the one who has life. He is the one who is clean. He is the one who has righteousness. Trust in Him and you will have salvation. A few application points this morning. Number one, Build the faith that changes you from the inside out. Deal with what's really going on in your heart. Don't just conform to an external set of activities. Receive the change that God gives you through the reality that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Secondly, seek the approval of God rather than man. Seek the approval of God rather than man. Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Don't fear him who can kill the body. Fear him who, after killing the body, can condemn your soul. That's God. <laughs> fear God more than you fear man. Thirdly, real faith deals with the why behind the what. That's a very important thing to understand. Man-made religion asks, What should I do? Christianity asks, why should you do it? The what is a man-made religion where you try to gain salvation for yourself. The why looks to the cross and says, why did Jesus die for me? Why did he have to rise from the dead? Why does he love me so much? Then you get to, what can I do in light of this great salvation? Fourthly, build faith that leads others to Jesus. Always be weary of a leader that wants to lead you to him or herself. Only follow those that point past themselves to say, follow Jesus Christ. Follow Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's all about Jesus. There's nothing I can do to offer you redemption. There's nothing I can do to offer you salvation. But Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done. Trust Him. Follow Him. Believe Him. And you'll be saved for eternity.